New York City's skyline is forever evolving, but the churches that dot the city's streets are lasting reminders of the Big Apple's rich and varied religious and cultural history. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're talking with Richard Panchik. He's the author of Manhattan Churches, which is part of Arcadia Publishing's Postcard History series. Richard is a repeat guest on the show. He was last here to talk about his book, Baseball History for Kids, back in May. You can listen to that show in our online archives. Richard, hello. Hello there. Nice to be here again, George. With the holidays upon us, what better time to talk about the churches of Manhattan? Many of them are decorated quite beautifully this time of year. What inspired you to put this book together? Well, growing up in Queens, I was inspired by the churches there, including what is actually the city's oldest standing church building, which is the St. James uh, Episcopal Church Hall, which was built in 1735. And across the street from it is an old Dutch Reformed church from the 1830s. So as a kid, I was always exposed to these beautiful buildings. And then going to high school in Manhattan, I, I really got a taste of what Manhattan's churches were, and I got to explore, and I was fascinated. Of course, the book starts in Lower Manhattan because that's where New York City got its start. That's right. Uh, New York City got its start as New Amsterdam in the 1620s, and the first, very first church was built at the very tip of Manhattan in 1633. Is that church still standing? No, that church is not still standing. The oldest standing church in Manhattan proper is St. Paul's Chapel, which is 1766. So all the other churches that came before it are gone. George Washington frequented St. Paul's Chapel during his presidency, right? He did. And in fact, he was, uh, at the time when he was going to be inaugurated, the Trinity Church, the new Trinity Church, which was going to be built, was still under construction and not quite ready. So he couldn't have his inauguration festivities there. Trinity Church is not far from St. Paul's Chapel. That's correct. And St. Paul's is a uh, church that falls under Trinity Parish. And Trinity actually had, over the years, a number of chapels in, uh, in, in under its auspices throughout the Manhattan. Wasn't Trinity Church also once the tallest structure in all of New York City? It's interesting that you bring that up because I was going to talk about that. In fact, until 1890 church spires were the tallest structures in New York City. And it's interesting to think of the Manhattan skyline as being dominated by church spires, but that's the case. And then finally in 1890, you get a building that's actually taller. Uh, I think it was 300 feet and uh, Trinity Church, you know, was somewhere around 180 feet. Uh, so you, you're finally now dwarving these churches, and it must have been such a strange sight for people to look up and see buildings and not church steeples. Trinity Church also has a pretty amazing cemetery on its property. The Trinity Cemetery, and, and keep in mind now that Manhattan, being such a tight, uh, real estate-wise, such a tight uh, area, it's you're not going to find a, a whole bunch of cemeteries in Manhattan like you might elsewhere. But some of the oldest ones are still extant. And the Trinity Church Cemetery is a fascinating one because of some of the people who are buried there. You have Robert Fulton, the inventor, and then you have a guy who, while he may have got attention 
before is certainly getting a lot of attention now, Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And when I was there a few months ago taking pictures, I, you know, just as I was standing there, there were people who came to visit his grave who obviously were inspired by the musical Hamilton. And so, you know, there's relevance even today to a lot of these burials. And, and of course, there are uh, plenty of others, revolutionary era uh, folks and, and uh, other other politicians in New York's history who are buried there as well. And, and the St. Paul Cemetery is another one that's also got some very old gravestones. You have a photo in the book of a gravestone at the Trinity Church Cemetery that dates back to 1681. Remarkable, 1681. And and again, the the, the thing is that you've got you're now on your third Trinity church, whereas the cemetery still stands. The first church burned down in the Great Fire of 1776, which destroyed a third of New York City, which was, we're still not sure what happened, but we think that it was set possibly by the British. Hmm. The second church was actually destroyed by snow. It was damaged by heavy snowfall. And so that that's where the third church comes in. But the cemetery dates back to the very, very early days of the first churches there and that site. Interesting to note that Manhattan did not have a Catholic church for its first 160 years of existence. It is fascinating. And I had um, talked about this, too, in my previous book, Catholic New York City. It's, it's, it's something you wouldn't think, given how many Catholic churches and how prevalent Catholicism is in New York. And you have... I think it's 2.5 million Catholics in the diocese right now. But think about this. New York was founded as New Amsterdam by Dutch Protestants. And then when the British took over in 1664, they were English Protestants. So you really didn't have the influx of Catholics to the, to the great degree until the 1840s and the Irish. So by... By the time the 18th century rolled around, you had very, still had very few Catholics in New York City. So as we talked about, New York City grew up in Lower Manhattan. But then, of course, people started to move northward. And I would imagine as they started to move northward, so too did the churches. The church, this is another thing that I noticed as I was writing this book, is that the churches did move up. And either... It's it's a function of where are you going to build a church, first of all. You're going to build a church where there are people who are living. It's going to be a, in a place where there's a residential community. And if you look now, if you look at Trinity, what is surrounding Trinity is obviously not residences and, and St. Paul's Chapel, same. So what happens, obviously, is you get development and commercialism and and now trinity is in wall street area which is one of the most commercial busy commercial areas in the country a church like trinity can survive because of its size and its power but a lot of other churches wound up selling their property and moving further up uh, or just being taken over by someone else Um, this happened throughout all the way up to and including the 20th century that we have churches on the move north. Manhattan was once home to a floating church. Where was that and who did it serve? That was uh, just off of Pike Street on the Lower East Side. And that was an Episcopal church. It was um, it was serving the sailors. It was suppo- The idea was that, you know, sailors didn't have a church at sea. 
So when they came to port, they needed a place. And and if you're a sailor, where do you want to? You don't want to go all the way in inland. You want to be have somewhere where it's right near where your ship is docked. So that was the idea behind that church. And I think it's kind of an interesting idea, a good little uh, marketing ploy that they that they used to get sailors to come. Now, of course, that church no longer exists. And with that said, how did you even discover that that church once did exist? In in doing this research, what happens is, you know, you, you wind up digging and then you, you find new things and leads and you keep digging further. And um, it was because this church is still, it's, it's, it's one of the churches that still exists um, in a different form. So when you do the research, you find out that it had its origins as that. And in fact, this particular church was um, located at South Street Seaport for a long time, and the lighthouse that was on top of it is still there. If you go down the seaport, it's there in the middle of the plaza. You'll see that actual uh, structure that was from the church building. It's now actually a memorial to the victims of the Titanic disaster. Right. This, the Siemens Church Institute put that up there as a memorial to the Titanic back um, you know, this was a hundred years ago, and then eventually it wound up on the ground level, and it's kind of an interesting bit of history that I didn't know about myself until I researched further. St. Patrick's Cathedral is no doubt one of the most famous churches in all of New York City. What interests you most about the history of St. Patrick's? I think what interests me most is the fact that it was when it was being built, first being built, how different Fifth Avenue was then. Um, this this is, again, this is kind of a brave uh, idea on the part of those who built the church, that they were thinking ahead to a time when Fifth Avenue would be what it is today. And you're basically they were buying property that was in the outskirts of the city at that time. And as the church was being built and there was a delay because of the Civil War, so it took a while to finish it. But by the turn of the 20th century, you start to have these mansions on Fifth Avenue and it started to it really the church fit into its surroundings, whereas before it was almost country. So to me, that's fascinating to see how it was transformed. And I think in a way, the church helped bring that development because you had this recognition that, hey, look, this this is it. This is the place to be. What is the biggest church in Manhattan? St. Patrick's is pretty big, but is it the biggest? No, there are a couple of really giant churches, and, and St. John the Divine is really, uh, it's a monumental structure, and the Riverside Church also. The two of them are the biggest churches in the city and in upper Manhattan. And they're, they're both in upper Manhattan, surprisingly. But again, you have a situation where, where would you be building a new church in the early 20th century? And, and, and then the answer lies in where is there space? So there was space up there. And in the case of St. John the divine, it's still not completed. It's amazing to think. And when you go there, you don't get this sense that, Oh, it's not finished, but that the original plans and the original models called for all this extra uh, space that is just not quite there yet. The stone isn't, they're not finished carving all the sculptures and, but it, it was a slow process to begin with. And even 
after years pass by, by 1911, it was only a third complete, for example. So it's still, it's, it's just because I like this story because it's kind of indicative of New York itself. It's, it's a great place when the, it'll be a great place when they finish it. Yeah. And that church is certainly awe inspiring, but imagine if when it's finally done, what it's going to look like. Would you say that is the most uniquely designed church in Manhattan or is there another that you would say is more uniquely designed? Well, that's an interesting question. I think, I think there are so many uniquely designed churches. Some of them are very unassuming from the outside. And then when you go in, you will see spectacular things. And that's one thing I wrote about in the introduction to the book is how these churches are like little jewels in, in the city. And especially now that they're all surrounded on all sides by skyscrapers, they're kind of, you you don't see them from a distance. So you kind of wander upon them and it's not always the outside that attracts us because the outside is, is sandwiched between two buildings and, and you go in and then you're like, you look up and you see this soaring and from outside, it doesn't look so tall, but when you go in and you see this unobstructed uh, space above you with, with the colored windows and, and it just, it, it's astonishing. So I would say that many of Manhattan's churches are these hidden gems that when you walk in, you're shocked at the amazing scope of the design. Any in particular that you would say you cannot miss, you have to go inside? There are a bunch of churches that would be on that list. Uh, certainly the big churches like Grace Church and St. Patrick's and, and Trinity uh, are, are treasures. But even a church like St. Mary's, which is on 46th Street in Times Square, it's one of the most beautiful churches in New York City, I think. And, but there are just so many that, you know, you could name a bunch. That one in particular is, is interesting to me because again, look at where it is now and it survived, but it's, it's a church that was built for a neighborhood that is now Times Square. That's not really residential. And when you go inside, it's this, it's this hugely inspiring Episcopal church, soaring, uh, beautiful and that's one that I like to frequent. It's it just, it's inspiring. Speaking of survival stories, we haven't touched on the survival stories of the two churches that we already referenced, Trinity and St. Paul's, because they survived the September 11th terrorist attacks right yes. in the path. Right. And, 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 and St. Paul's even closer than Trinity. And uh, in fact, people said, wow, this is kind of miraculous that it did survive with really almost no damage. The, the cemetery had some uh, debris and soot that it did take a while to clear that. But in fact, St. Paul's has had a new chapter written in its history because it became a kind of triage and, and command center for the fire department and, and the emergency workers to use because it was so close. And because it was a church, it had, you know, the ability to provide that refuge. And um, it's kind of a miracle that it did survive being so old. And I don't want to say fragile, but it, it is, it was, you know, 200 plus years old. So that to me was one of the miracles uh, that came out of September 11th. Who are among the more notable architects of Manhattan churches in history? I would say that James Renwick is probably 
one of the most notable, and he was the architect for Grace Church, for example. And at that time, he was only 24 years old. So it was mm-hmm. really the beginning of his career. And if you look at Grace Church, and you would not say that this church was designed by a 24-year-old. I mean, imagine today a 24-year-old architect doing something of that scope. But obviously, he went on to other great things. And there are so many different churches with so many of the the day's best architects. And some of them are are obscure names that you may not know, but the city's churches were designed by basically the best in in the business at the time that they were built. So when what you see is a reflection of that when you look around. We mentioned that George Washington frequented St. Paul's, but who else did you discover frequented some of Manhattan's churches that perhaps surprised you? Well, it it is surprising because you would not think that Ulysses Grant, the former president, would be associated with New York, but he did move here toward the end of his life. And um, he went to the Metropolitan Temple Methodist Episcopal Church. You had Teddy Roosevelt, who, still true to his Dutch heritage, was going to the Collegiate Church, which the Collegiate Church was the old, is kind of the oldest church that was. that is in Manhattan, it was it had its origins in the first Dutch uh, Reformed Church. And you had people like Edgar Allan Poe, who was a parishioner at the All Saints Church, Eugene O'Neill, who was baptized in the Holy Innocents on 37th Street, which is another beautiful church that I should mention. Um, what makes that church beautiful in your eyes? The exterior is, is rather striking, the contrast of the stone color on the exterior. And again, the interior is also magnificent. Uh, so there, yeah, there, the 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 city's history. I, I kept discovering, you know, this person was baptized here, married here, funeral here. It's and it's uh, St. Patrick's is obviously the the biggest and the best of of uh, when you get to the list of notables who had some affiliation with it. It's, it's amazing. Billy the Kid was baptized at Old St. Peter's Church on Barclay Street. I was very interested to learn that in your book. <laughs> Yes, and I, I mean, it is an interesting thing when, you know, and I found that little obscure fact, and, and you wonder, and, and it said there was not much else information, but possibly the parent, his parents were married there as well. I bet that this is only the surface, and if, if we were able to know more about most of the famous people in New York's history, then we would find all this information about what churches they attended, and, and it's cool to know that information. But it's hard to find. It's not something that you can just go out there and get easily. The funeral of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, was held at the Church of the Incarnation in 1941. I understand that the church actually made special accommodations for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who used a wheelchair. Yes, they had to uh, install a ramp so that he could get in. And, um, you know, I've in so many cases I've read of funerals that around the city and especially uh, at places that are important churches and big churches where thousands of people attended in a case where there's a famous funeral a famous person's funeral you will have obviously limited space within the church but there have been plenty of instances where the streets have been lined with onlookers as the procession makes its way from either the funeral home or the house or wherever it was to the church or going to the cemetery on the way out. So these these events in, in the city's history have drawn a lot of attention, and, and people gather around to see this big deal. 
Speaking of the streets being lined, there's a great image in the book of a bread line outside St. Francis of Assisi Church on West 30th Street, circa 1970. But that church has a long tradition of helping people in need. It does. And this is a role that New York City's churches have played from the beginning, is to really help those in need. And the soup kitchens and thrift shops and and things like that, you'll see them in a lot of of the city's churches. And um, that particular church is, is an interesting one because, again, it was built in a place where it was a residential neighborhood, and now it's right by Penn Station. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually had a transformation. In order to survive, it needed to, to serve now commuters and workers rather than people who lived there. St. Malachy's Church in the theater district was once a haven for actors and tourists. Is that still the case, or has that changed, too? I think it's still somewhat the case. A lot of the things that churches were known for are now kind of legend, but... I think it's still the case to an extent, and certainly the the church recognizes and recognizes and celebrates this heritage, and it it's a, quite aware of it, and it it's clear in the um, church literature that this is the actor's church, and they they tout that. The Church of the Transfiguration in Midtown Manhattan has an interesting story. How did it become known as the little church around the corner? It is it is a funny story, and again, that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of people know the name, but aren't aware of the history. It, it goes back to when an actor died. Uh, this was over 150 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, an actor died, and was you know his friends were trying to get him buried, and and. They wanted to say if have a funeral mass said, and so uh, went looking at, to the church that was nearby and said uh, we'd like to do this. and And the, basically, they were re- rejected, and because actors at the time were not seen as very desirable people, <laughs> so the uh, pastor at that church said, "Why don't you try the little church around the corner?" Which already by this time had a reputation for being open and and willing to serve all people. And so they did go to the little church around the corner, which was the Church of the Transfiguration, and were accepted. And ever since then, the church has kept that name, even as early as that point in time, the late 19th century. And it has this reputation as being this uh, very romantic church, and and a lot of marriages took place there. It's, it's, It's a very... Uh, picturesque church and and two and how it looks outside. That's one of the I would say that's one of the city's more uh, interesting architecturally, too. The book features a number of photographs, but it also features churches depicted on postcards. And you brought some of those with you today. I did, and in fact, this series is really designed to give people because postcards were such a good capsule history of of you know of of what's important at the time. And postcards were the way for people to, you know, now everyone just texts, but uh, they were the way for people to say, hey, look, I was here. And you're going to show your friends and family the best and most exciting and most fascinating places. And churches were uh, and still are. And, And 
in the early days of postcards in the late 1800s there were there were your your few staple churches that were on postcards a lot which was trinity you got your your saint patrick's and you had your saint paul's chapel and grace church and little church around the corner those were the big five that really were featured on postcards talk to us about this image here featuring a cartoon character of sorts yes well um Postcard manufacturers, there were so many of them, and I think probably dozens at the time, and they were all trying to compete for business. And basically, you've got different angles and borders, and you, they're trying to come up with, how am I going to sell these postcards, make make it different? So this particular one has a picture of Trinity Church, an actual photo, but it has a cartoon of an old guy who's stuck by the seat of his pants on the spire and the caption on top says i just landed here so it's kind of a humorous and this one dates to about 1908 uh-huh. so it's kind of a humorous take and it might you know if you're standing in a in a shop this might draw your attention and that was a way that they got people to purchase postcards how did you find these postcards i've had a postcard collection for a long time now and i keep adding to it and I get them in antique shops or in uh, souvenir stores or, or, or I even get them online sometimes. But uh, it's a collection that's been in the making for years now. And I you know, go through my postcards and I look at what, what do I have and what, what's not represented. And it's, it's interesting when you go looking for church postcards, what you find. And this is also how I was limited in the book because you're – the book is really supposed to be mainly postcards mm-hmm. with some photos. So I'm limited by what churches actually were in postcards. What else do you have here that you brought with you today? Well, I have an interesting one that's another gimmick, which is a hold to the light postcard, which when you hold it up, um, it's basically the windows of Trinity Church in this are cut out and replaced with uh, replacing the actual postcard paper is tissue paper that's colored so when you have it just laying there it just looks like some colored tissue paper but when you hold it up it kind of glows and has a the windows illuminate it's illuminated Uh it's it's kind of inspiring and so this was another way that people could say hey look this postcard's different why don't you buy this one uh so that's kind of and this is a really early one probably dating to about 1900 huh How many churches have you discovered that closed and have reopened with a new use? I remember going to the Limelight Club when I was in my younger days, which was a church at one time in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And I think now it's home to shops. And this was another thing that was interesting to uncover as I went through, that there are several churches that uh, thankfully the building still exists, but were reused. And the one that is pretty striking is uh, on 44th Street between 7th and 8th what is now a John's Pizzeria uh, was actually a gospel tabernacle church it was never very um, assuming from the outside to begin with so even back then it wasn't like it screamed out church especially today but when you go inside the John's Pizzeria you make work your way to the back and you look up and you see this window this this pretty colored window straight up above and you see the the balcony of where the the church uh, you know mezzanine was 
and you realize that you're wow this is this was a great church space and they reused it and it's at the time it opened it was i think new york city's largest pizzeria i think it seated 400 people so that's that's one uh example of of where they've reused something i think it's it's cool you have um a church like st clement's which still exists and still functions as a church but it's used as an off-broadway theater as well hmm. so that's kind of cool and and you know the truth is that a lot of times churches to to keep going they need something else happening what about landmarking how many churches in manhattan are landmarked there are a fair number um i don't have a count but there are a fair number of churches that are landmarks new york city landmarks but again the landmarking process limits you to being able to make alterations so it is a question of do you know do we want this status and sometimes it's not completely up to you, but obviously a, a place like Trinity, you know, some of those places are definitely landmarks without question. But there are plenty of churches in the city that could be landmarks that maybe not because it's just there, there, there are just too many churches and you can't landmark all of them. So, Richard, leave us with one more interesting story about a Manhattan church. I think the Lutheran church house story is, a, is an interesting one. Originally was a uh, townhouse that was owned by J.P. Morgan that he had purchased for his son, Jack. And when his son died in 1943, after that, it was sold to the Lutheran Church. And it became part of the Lutheran Church's operations. There was a chapel inside. And then a few decades later, it went back to the Morgan family and wound up becoming part of the extended part of the Morgan Library, which... It was connected to with a um, with with the garden court that was built. So it's one instance where it was something else. Then it was a church. Then it became something else again. Well, the book is Manhattan Churches. Richard Penchik, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me, George. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.